Father, I want to thank you for the love that you have for your people and your people have for your, the brothers and the sisters. And now as we dig into your word, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we're kind of walking through the book of Genesis. Well, not really the book of Genesis, but I've been preaching out of Genesis for like two weeks in a row now. Actually, one week in a row. This will make two weeks in a row. And um, I really enjoy the creation story because chapter 1 and chapter 2 really kind of lay the the groundwork of what God was up to and and how he creates all this. And I especially love the the cadence of chapter 1 when it goes through verses 1 through 26, you know, um, where, where God is creating and, and then it's evening and then it's morning and then it's the first day and the second day and the third day. I, I don't read the original language. I, I don't know Hebrew. But from what I understand, the cadence and, and the, the, uh, the sense of poetry that, that that is in its original language is, is very beautiful. And it's, it's, it's this story of creation, <laughs> it's the story of creation. And in that story, we realize that God has purpose and that God is very deliberate with what he's doing and how he's doing things. We are not just a systematic coincidence of mutations that, that took place that has allowed us to get here. And so God is, God is purposeful in everything that he's doing and everything that he's creating, including, including us. And so that's kind of chapters 1 and, and, and chapters 2. But then we get to chapter 3. And things begin to change a little bit. Dare I say, a lot. Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis may be one of the most single important chapters in the entire Bible. Now, some people, some people like to stay in the New Testament. They, they like to read the Gospels. They, they think that's the real important stuff for Jesus' followers, that all we need is really the New Testament. We need those letters. And, and, and think about it. When, when, when there's a, a person who's coming to faith, a new person, we don't tell them to go read Leviticus. Go check out Deuteronomy. It's awesome. We, we, we send them to the Gospels. We send them to the Gospel of John. But I, I want to tell you that the Old Testament isn't filler. The Old Testament wasn't put into the revelation of God so it could be a little bit thicker and, and maybe have a little bit more substance to it. It wasn't kind of a, an afterthought. The Old Testament is the story of God interacting with humanity and redeeming all things. The story of the Old Testament is God's plan in action um, in spite of us, in spite of humanity, in spite of our stubbornness. It's the story of what God has been up to. And it continues on to what God is up to. And so the third chapter of this entire revelation is very important for us to understand. For us to get a hold of. Because it explains the how and the why. Chapter 3 explains the how and the why. As I was preparing this week, um, over and again on the news, I, I heard the story of a father who, who throws his seven-month-old baby into the Connecticut River. 
And I say, how can that be possible? Why? See, chapter 3 gets to the heart of that. The how and the why. How and why humanity has fallen from intimacy and harmony with our creator. Genesis chapter 3 is the beginning of what the world is like today. Now, as we live and as we work and as we kind of move through life and we deal with all the things that we deal with in our lives, both individually and, and on a bigger scale, I believe now it's, it's even more important that the church understands our beginnings Humanity's beginnings. It's important for us to understand our roots. Because in understanding that, we will begin to understand the gospel. Which is equally as important. And we... we if we understand our beginning, and we understand the gospel, then we move through this world not just surviving. God's plan isn't for us just to survive. God's plan is for us to thrive here. And as we thrive here because of the gospel, we can be a blessing to this world around us. That's his plan for the church. That's his plan for us. But you know, it seems that, that, that at times the church tends to cower. The church tends to just kind of complain and point fingers. Or the church will run. But man, I'm, we're part of the entire story. We're part of the big picture. We have a role to play in it. We've been called to be part of it. And we want healing. And we want wholeness. And we want to be fruitful. And I don't mean fruitful in the context of, of, of the Bible. I mean fruitful about... Yeah, you know, I, I've been able to travel a lot of different countries. You know, the majority of people I meet, they want to live with passion and purpose in life. And that's what I mean by being fruitful. They want, to have a, they want to have a reason for getting up in the morning. They want to be part of the big picture. We want to be part of the big picture. And unless we know it and understand it and realize where we've come from, then, then, then I'm afraid that we just may, or we are destined to just muddle through this life. That's not God's plan. It's not God's plan for us. And so last week, we began to kind of press into the importance of the scripture. It's a, it's a comprehensive worldview, and it's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our cultural shifts. It's based on God's truth. It's based on God's word, which is an absolute truth. And it begins how? It begins by saying, in the beginning, God. And then he goes on to create everything. And he creates us. And, and we're that special creation. We're just not some animal that has evolved up the food chain that we got to the top somehow. And now we're king of the castle. We've been created with purpose and meaning and value. And, and then the story kind of goes on as we get into chapter 3. That Satan comes on the scene and, and humanity is tempted and humanity falls. And we, humanity, comes under the righteous judgment of a perfect God. But God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us just, just in that place. His, this, this revelation of who he is begins to reveal a God who has an unyielding love and compassion and mercy on his creation. And he's involved in his creation. And he provides for us a solution, a salvation, 
One that we don't deserve in the first place, but he provides it for us. And we cannot fully understand the New Testament unless we understand the need of our salvation. Why do we need to be saved? Why do we need to be lifted up out of our sin? We need to understand Genesis chapter 3. And so... Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We kind of touched on this verse last week. And I will say that this, what you're reading right here, is a piece of recorded history. This is an event that actually took place in human history. And what takes place in the rest of this chapter uh, with these two people, Adam and Eve, plays itself out in this world, in people's lives, every single day. And unless we know it, unless we can identify it, we are never going to be able to address it, let alone submit ourselves to a God who is the only God that can fix it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Adam all die. But in Christ, in Christ, all are made alive. One man brought death and one man will bring life. And that's Jesus Christ. And we have been part of this story from the beginning. And God is inviting us into this new story of redemption through Christ. He continually invites people in, calling them, wooing them, loving them into the story. And yet... The world and, 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 and the church, we continue to live out Adam and Eve's story every day. History does repeat itself. And so if you're familiar with chapter 3, you know that both Adam and Eve, they become a little bit miserable in their condition, in their circumstances. They become, they become fearful, you know the story, they, they ate the fruit, the apple on the flannel graph anyway, and, and, and so things just start to, to go a, a little bit south for them. And they don't know what to do. The sense I get is they don't know what to really do, and so they're fearful, and, and they hide. The shame thing that they're experiencing is very new to them, and so, so they hide. Well, they try to hide, but God's judgment will find them, and for the woman, she will have pain. And childbirth, and for the man, he will have to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. Woo, go us. And I got to ask, like, like, I ask, what happened? Why in the world would they do such a thing? And we know the action took place, but what I believe and what I understand from the scripture is our actions, our decisions aren't just a superficial response. They begin deep within the human heart and within the human soul. And so we got to ask, like, what was going on? And maybe we can just kind of sum it up this way. They decided to ignore the word of God. I know that seems a little simple. But Adam and Eve stopped listening to what God was speaking into their lives. And the world and all the people in it are where we are now. 
because of that one moment and because we continue to listen to a different voice instead of the voice of God. It's the voice of discontentment. Did God really say? Did God really say? Do you really believe that? Are you, are you sure? And see, that gets to the heart of the question and it gets to the heart of the problem. Adam and Eve acted in doubt and we continue their legacy. We act in doubt. And the world is the way it is because of that. See, they, they owe everything to God. Like, he created them. He, he, he made them and he blessed them and, and gave them their home. This garden we call Eden. And, and it seems like it was a pretty cool place. Not just weather-wise, but just cool in general. And, and yes, they had to work. But work seemed to be different if I, if I understand the scripture. There was a certain dignity to work that maybe we just don't fully understand. And they lived there and they had everything they would ever need in their, in their garden. And they also had intimacy with God. They had this intimacy where, where God spoke to them and, and visited with them. And, and I don't know, maybe he hung out with them. Maybe they did fires at night and they roasted papaya. I'm not quite sure. But there was an intimacy that, that we miss today. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy life. This is all for you. But there was one thing more that God kind of added to that. It was a law. It was a condition. He said, this is all for you. But you see, there's this one tree. Just, just don't eat the fruit from that one tree because there's consequences to that. Basically, he's telling them, this is all yours forever and ever. You can live this way forever. Just do what I ask you to do. Just listen to me. And this is yours. I get this, this feeling as I read this and kind of, kind of let it marinate that God wants them to understand that no matter how good it is, no matter how amazing it is, he is still the authority of everything. See, God has the right to do as he pleases. He has the right to do as he sees fit. And since he is a good God, what he pleases is always good for his creation. It's always good for his creation. He's always concerned about our well-being. He's always concerned with, with our lives. And he always calls us into this fullness of life. And, and Adam and Eve were given blessing upon blessing. But in there was a condition. He says, man, just, just listen to me. Obey this one thing I'm asking you to do. And it was the one thing they chose not to do. And they wanted what they wanted. And they chose to go their own way. But we know the story. We've been in the scripture. We know that that's not the end of the story. That God would send, because of his unyielding love and mercy and compassion, he's going to send Jesus. And he's inviting his creation back to an abundant life. Come back. Come back. The, the, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, it's, it's the unsearchable richness or riches of Christ's. We're, we're, we're given the opportunity to live the life Jesus lived. He doesn't leave us in that place of judgment. But he, then he still is telling us, 
but follow me, o- obey me. There's, there's still that, that condition there. And yet God knows the weakness that we experience. He knows we can't get this right ourselves. And so he sends Jesus not to just live before us, but to die for us. He gives us the cross. And from the cross we have the good news or this gospel. The gospel is something of of beauty. But yet it still calls us into a certain life. It calls us into certain rhythms. Invites us into those. The, The gospel tells us, If you want to love God, don't fall in love with money. If you you want to build your life on a firm foundation, which is Christ, then don't go build on, on sand. You want to avoid destruction? Enter through the narrow gate, who's Christ. Stay away from the wide gate, which more people seem to go through. There is a path to God's blessing. There is a direction that we have to be traveling in. See, the gospel never said, listen, just just do what you want. Live the way you want to live. Don't worry about anything. I mean, it's God doesn't mind. Whatever you want to do, just, just, just go for it. See, that's the lie of the enemy. That's the lie of the garden. God loves us so much that he absolutely cares about the way we live. God loves us so much that he absolutely cares about the decisions that we make in our lives. He loves us so much that he cares about the condition of our heart because out of the heart flows the way we live. And you know, I I think about this story. I've been thinking about it for a couple weeks now as I've been kind of roaming around in in the beginning of Genesis. And And I gotta scratch my head. And I'm just like, what is wrong with them? Like, like, I'm thinking like this. Sandy and I, we, we love Jamaica. We've only been twice, but we love it. And we went there on our honeymoon, and it was awesome. And then at our 20-year anniversary, we went back, and it was really awesome because we weren't young and stupid, and, and we were just, you know, on the quiet side of the pool this time. And, 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 and we just really like it. And, and we went to an all-inclusive resort, which means it's all-inclusive and, and everything, everything is there. And, and I wonder if the Garden of Eden was like an all-inclusive resort. Like God's like, he's the guy at the front desk and goes, everything is yours. And I can think of checking in to that, to that all-inclusive resort in Jamaica. And, and the guy behind the desk says, okay, it's, it's all yours. You get to stay here forever. Except there's this one tree in the center of the resort. Don't eat it because the fruit's going to kill you. Personally, me, I'm good. Like, I don't know if you've been to a resort, but if I don't have to eat just from one tree, I'm okay with that. They got the jerk beef bar. They got the breakfast. I don't need fruit anyway. <laughs> and, 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 and so I, I just can't think of what were they thinking in that moment. They believed the devil's opinion. They believed hearsay. They believed just, just kind of what he was shooting off the top of his head. And yeah, in verse 4, we're going to get to that. He tells them, yeah, you know, you're not going to die. But he's got nothing to back it up. He's like, he's got, it's, 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 he's got no facts. He's got no PowerPoint presentation on why they should not listen to God. I mean, he just throws it out there. And the both of them buy into it. And I just want to grab a hold of them and shake them. Until I realize I am them. I am Adam. I am Eve. 
How often do I base the decisions of my life on hearsay or opinion, personal opinion, cultural opinion, my own opinion, even when that opinion stands in stark contrast to the word of God and his truth? I don't have anything really to back it up with except this is what I want. And then sometimes what I want, I can talk myself into doubting who God is. See, I, my story is their story. Our story is their story. Adam and Eve begin to doubt two really big things about God that we should never doubt about God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. Adam Eve, they began to doubt the power of God. <laughs> Satan pretty much is telling them, he's like, oh, come on, guys, really? Like, this, this God guy, his, his bark is way worse than his bites. And I really don't think you have to worry too much about it. I mean, he's a big shot, but really, he's just a little bullet. And so, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Eat the fruit anyway. You're really not going to die. It's all good. They begin to question the power of God. And let me tell you, questioning God's power, that's a bad step in our lives. That's always going to lead to a fall. It's always going to get us in trouble. If we, if the world, if the church really began to understand the power of God, even just a little bit, the entire human creation would instantly stop denying him, stop disobeying him, and stop ignoring him. And we would fall flat on our face in awe even if we got a little bit of the understanding. Because when we doubt God's power, we continue in our sin. Those outside the church and those inside the church. Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I know that it's comfortable for the Christian to say, well, it's not really being afraid. It's more like, awe. No, it's not like, awe. The way you want to pronounce that word, awe, is like, awe. Because in Hebrews 10, 11, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There should be a healthy amount of fear to the one that created you. The one that brought you into this world, the one that can take you out and make another one look just like you. The moment we begin to doubt the power of God, the moment that Adam and Eve began to doubt the power of God, things began to unravel, and humanity has been unraveling ever since. And even the way we talk about God in our conversations, and, and I think it's just this, this flippant denial of, of his power. He is the great I am, creator of all things seen and unseen. 
He is eternal. He is almighty. His glory never fades. He is powerful in ways that we cannot even begin to ask the questions to help us understand. And, and, I, and I say this, and I don't say it jokingly, that yes, on a philosophical level, God can create a boulder that's too big for him to move, and then he can move it. And I know that this makes no sense at all, but it doesn't have to because he's God. And who can fathom the mysteries of God? He's never had a beginning. He's just always is. He'll never have an ending. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get hungry. His back never aches. His knees don't hurt. He never has to shave. And look how we express in our conversations, our opinions about him. Look Examine yourself and look how you live before him. I know that the world has lost its fear of the Lord. But sometimes I have to ask, have we, the church, also lost the fear of the Lord? Without this healthy fear, then we will continue, we will continue wholeheartedly in the footsteps of Adam and Eve every day, doubting God's power. And so we have to ask ourselves, I think on a continual basis, who's in control of our lives? Who directs our life? Are we submitted to the things of God? Are we submitted to the things of ourself or the things of other people? I was trying to think, um, I was posed a question in my study and I was trying to think for myself, when was the last time I spent time meditating on the awesome power of the Lord? It's not something I think about often. I wonder if I really spent some time thinking about that. It wouldn't send me to my knees with a simple prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. When humanity began to doubt God's power, we grew and we continued to grow in our own arrogance. But that's just one side of the coin, doubting God's power. See, there's, there's the flip side of the coin. Satan has the audacity to cast doubt on the goodness of God. And this is him speaking to Eve. For God knows that when you eat from it, the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> Satan, says to, Satan says to her, you know, this God just wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you under his oppressive thumb. He doesn't want everything that's good for you. I mean, if you knew what was beyond this garden, you think that it's only good here, you should see what else is out there. And if you only understood that, then you would realize that this God wants to keep it for himself. He doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want you to become like him. He wants you to keep you down. He's not a good God. And, and they believe him. They believe that he's not good. They doubt his justice and his love and his compassion and his mercy and his goodness. They doubt the character of the Lord. And doesn't that get to the heart of the matter? Because that's what the world believes about him today. That he's not a good God. And I would say that that philosophy, mentality, theology, whatever you want to call it, has 
has uh, snuck its way into the church. How many times have we thought that God has no right to do this? He has no right to tell me no. This isn't making me happy. How can God be good if? How can he be a good God if he allows this or that? The other thing. He's judgmental. He's unfair. It's the lie of the garden. God's ways are not our ways. We don't understand everything. But the begin, when we begin to doubt that he is not good, <laughs> it puts us in a very dangerous place. It puts us in a very dangerous posture within our hearts. See, first we believe the opinion of the enemy. And then within that p- opinion, we begin to raise doubts about the power of the Lord. And then we begin to raise doubts about his goodness, just like Eve did. And the problem with those two things, those are two things we do not want to doubt about God. Because when we begin to doubt those things, we begin to rely on our own reasoning and our own wisdom. Genesis 3, 6, For when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They began to think, well, you know, maybe this God is a little too restrictive. Too many constraints, too many don'ts. Really, we have all this garden, but we can't eat from the one tree. Come on, God, really? See, the danger with this posture is we begin to take over God's role as God. Or worse yet, we begin to create a God that fits much better into my lifestyle. A God that's, a God that's comfortable. We create a God here and in here, one that's more manageable. It's not that we don't believe in God, but it's just easier to believe in a God or to create a God that is not going to tell me no. It's not, going to, it's not going to say, listen, here's the rhythms of life that, that are going to be best for you. I mean, doesn't he think that I know enough about me that I can do a better job at establishing my own life and my own direction and my own rhythms? I don't want a God that's going to judge me. I mean, judgment is so, it's so judgmental. I, I don't want a God that's, I want, I want one that's going to let me live the way that I want to live. I want one that's going to let me do the things that I want to do. I know what's good for me. I know what's right for me. And these these God things, no. But what's funny to me, funny, funny, not funny, haha, is that we want our Heavenly Father to be the exact opposite of who most of us are as parents. Imagine allowing your children to do whatever they want to do. You don't put boundaries on them. You don't want to squash their little hearts. You can run out into the street. Don't worry. There's no consequence to that. And we just let them run amok and do whatever they want to do. There's no boundary. There's no consequence. Just just live your life. If they make it to adulthood, I can't imagine that they're going to be well-adjusted adults. But isn't that the God that the world wants today. 
a God that we have created in our ever-changing image of what humanity looks like in whatever phase of history that we are in. We have substituted our own opinions, our own philosophies, our own feelings over the God of Scripture. See, the Lord our God has created each one of us in his image, and he's given purpose and value to our life. He has created us that we have been born in this moment, in this time for a reason. This God has ordained everything. He's ordained the seasons. He's ordained the sun and the moon. He's, he's ordained every, every animal that's ever migrated to any other spot. I mean, he's ordained everything. He's, or, he's ordained the church. He's ordained uh, states and nations and, and, and cultures and governments. You know, I, I enjoy complaining about... Uh, politicians. And I'm an equal opportunity offender. I, I poke fun at both sides of the aisle, both Republican and Democrat. I, I hold no punch, pull no punches. But, but here's the thing that we have to understand. The reason that these people are in office today, we like to think that it's the democratic process. And it is a democratic process, and you should vote. But they're in office today because of the sovereignty of God. And, and, and yeah, it's not in some deterministic way. That's my belief. But that even makes his sovereignty even more powerful, that God's plan can work out in a non-deterministic way, but he is sovereign over all things. Republican, he did not bang his head against the wall when Obama got in. Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. He's king. And in the words of Monty Python, you don't vote for a king. Best movie ever. Let's strike that from the record, please. And this God sends the rains and he sends the sun. He ordains crops to be grown in the fields and fruit to, to form on the trees. He's given every good thing to his creation, every good thing to his creation. And yet we continue to go our own way. As the church, maybe we need to begin to stop with the question of, did God really say that? And maybe we need to begin to live into the statement that I believe what God has said. And I am going to surrender to it. I believe what God has said. And I am going to surrender to it. And I thought maybe, just maybe with the verse we ended with last week, we can begin with this verse, or end with this verse again. That if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, this doesn't point the finger at anybody. This is about us. It's about the church. And so before we leave, can we just take a few minutes and can we just pray into this verse? And you can pray quietly into this verse. You can stand up, pray out loud. But this is not us casting blame on anyone. This is us taking responsibility for who we are, for our shortcomings. That we would pray 
that we would humble ourselves, that we would seek God's face. And so let's spend a few minutes here. And so, Father, I ask that this, for our community, let this be the first day of a new journey of humility, prayerfulness, repentance, and seeking your face. We stand before you in confidence that this is your invitation to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. I will see you next week.